Hey, Q, you seen this? What is this? This is Aussie Fest. Ozfest, dude. Why do I care about Ozfest? I don't even know that they still do Ozfest. No, it's different this year. Look, watch. Intersectionalism, pride, hashtag resist, curated experiences, people using the word lit, millennials, Ozfest. So, so what? Ozfest is like political now? No, asshole. This is Ozfest. I already told you that. This month, Central Park, New York. You don't have to pretend you care what Trump voters think. None of them will be there. Fuck them! Huh. Okay, what is Ozzyfest? Ozzyfest! Organized by leading centrist, liberal, democrat, light news website, Ozzy.com. Ozzyfest! It's a two-day event featuring today's hottest entertainers, innovators, and thought leaders who are ahead of their time and worthy of yours. Get ready to think, eat, rock, and smell your own farts. If you're looking for a place to reconcile your growing unease under creeping totalitarianism that your facile liberal politics aren't prepared to contend with, Fest. If you're looking to satisfy that innate need to do something you keep talking about on Facebook but without actually doing anything that makes you uncomfortable or disrupts your day, Fest. If you want to indulge that healthy instinct to take to the streets and quench it with a consumer experience, Experience that fosters a false sense of shared community around the common goal of buying merch. Aussie Fest, Aussie Fest, Aussie Fest. Why would someone go to this? It doesn't even look like Ozzy Osbourne's gonna be there. Talented people of color performing on stage. Untalented people who are also on stage, but just talking or doing news live on stage. Mostly white people from Brooklyn in the audience recording it on their iPhones. Aussie Fest. You'll hear from the most compelling fresh speakers like Big Tobacco's Malcolm Gladwell. Musical performance by Group Love. I actually don't know who that is. They're just like if an Apple commercial was a band. Common! Oh, fuck off, man. Also, we have people you can just see by turning on the news at any time of day, like Dana Bash, Jamel Hill, and Jake Tapper, and you are here for it! This sounds boring. Let me just say, Jake Tapper is an asshole. Jake Tapper? Yeah. Asshole. Featuring Michelle Wolf, Chelsea Handler, one of the guys from The Daily Show, which is apparently still on TV. Gotta say, I am like 50% sold. Jay-Z's tax attorney, the Fire Festival chief marketing officer, Robbie Mook. Retired athletes talking about sports or politics or society or investments or something like Alex Rodriguez, Tim Brown, and Tony Gonzalez. Aussie Fest, Aussie Fest, Aussie Fest. Hear from people whose names you pretend you recognize when people bring them up like Demisa Muyo, Isaac Mitsraki, Hassan Minaj, and Cindy Ma- how much is this shit? Save big when you buy a live event season pass, which gets you into Salon Con, Slate Fest, and Box by Box West, all for one low price of $4,995. Just up front, that seems like way too much money. Eat a $20 mini plate of mediocre food truck barbecue. Think about the privilege, but not so much that you doubt spending hundreds of dollars on this drab snore fest. Rock to the softest artist of every musical genre. Focus group tested to ensure the widest possible appeal while also being completely unentertaining. Aussie Fest! Aussie Fest! Aussie Fest! Fuck your racist grandfather! He has no idea about your life or the cool shit happening in the city, and he never will! You don't need him! You could pay your own rent if you had to! We 
might be too old for this. I'm getting exhausted just thinking about this. Aussie Fest, Experiential, Augmented Reality, LinkedIn, Grad School, Roy Choi, Roxanne Gay yelling at you, Steven fucking Pinker. So, I mean, we could go to this. It might be funny for us to And you're going to flip your LOL millennial ass off when you hear about our just announced keynote speaker, Hillary Clinton. Nope. Jesus fucking Christ. No, thanks. Aussie Fest. 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 Aussie Fest, Aussie Fest, Aussie Fest, Aussie Fest. I gotta like, I, I, I gotta set up a better workflow where I'm not always like looking on my desktop for. I guess is there templates I can build in an audition? I like where fold- I just I have folders in uh, in Dropbox where everything is nicely organized. We'll never be able to do that because I got to go into the Dropbox and Dropbox is just a mess. And Why? Why don't you use the syncing app? I don't I understand. I hate you. I hate Why? You. It's just a folder you. on your desktop. It ends up being This Dropbox. is the same thing that Nazis did. This is violence. You're committing <laughs> violence to me. I, right I don't now. understand why you don't like Dropbox. Yo, you know what I just learned about yesterday? What's I feel so stupid. I watched an instructional video on how to normalize sound. <laughs> That's why, like, the last three podcasts that I've put out sound so good <laughs> compared to every other podcast I've ever done. Like, how to, um, what do you call it? Uh, how to, like, set the 0.1 decibel meter and all that. Yeah, like, I didn't know how to do any of Some that. people would say that you should just jump in both feet and, like, not learn before you do anything, but... You know, <laughs> but those people that are does, idiots. That doesn't really work very well. <laughs> those people are homeless. <laughs> <laughs> Those people live live in vans. <laughs> I'm Q, and I'm Jewish Dave. This is Bird Road. This is Bird Road. Yo, um, I'm not gonna say the thing about Wait, this what was this political what is podcast. This? <laughs> what? You're, you're only progressive political. <laughs> Remember, that's like the thing I left over from the last episode. That's our new. That's our new catchphrase. No, I don't like it. I don't know. I want. I want to say what we are, but I also find that to be lame to say what you are. Yeah, that's. I don't know about that. I don't know. Does this American Life say what they are? No. <laughs> Do they start off every episode and say, uh, "This is a bad podcast that has lots of money for no reason"? <laughs> no. You Welcome were told to, to listen Life. to this podcast. Welcome to this American life. Your friends at work will judge you if you don't listen to this. If you work in specific places in media, rate, review, subscribe. Um, Dave, what's happening? I'm piecing it together now. Piecing it together, we're going to be doing a indie film called In Memory Of by uh, director Eric Stanzi, who uh, his previous films were in the Polygrind Film Festival and the the creator of the Polygram Film Festival, Chad Clinton Freeman, who is a uh, a regular co-host on Piecing It Together, uh, he's joining me for the episode. So that'll be cool. A little something different than the usual uh, big movies and all that. Entre Dos just got done recording in um, the Bird Road podcast. Uh, I'm sorry, the All Points West podcast, Studio A. And uh, they, they're, they're putting together a two-part series 
um, with a, a language, uh, a, a linguistic scientist. So um, you should listen to that. Uh, that's an incredible show. I've been working on editing it and it sounds great. It's coming together really well. Awesome. Um, uh, we're on Twitter. We're on Instagram. We are once again, not on Facebook. Just we are on Facebook, work. but we're not on not, Facebook. Yeah. We're, we're kind of on Facebook. Don't engage with us on Facebook. <laughs> I just, I loved the idea. I don't know how well it'll come together once we do all the editing and everything, but the OZ fest, did you do any research into the OZ, the Ozzy fest? Um, I did some research in so much as that I got a email from their mailing list and I didn't open it. Good. Sounds good. Um, <laughs> that's about the deference with which you should treat an organization and a, an endeavor such as this. This is one of these, like what I wrote in the notes was like, it just is this commercialization and merchandising of, of the resistance. Yeah. So it's just this big. Um, there is wherever there's emotion there's capital that can be called like wherever yeah. there's a feeling or a sentiment or something like that that's a business opportunity and we talked about things i think a couple of episodes ago um i i, I forget what it was we were talking about but just things that are cynical in nature in politics right now which is like everything but shit like that is so cynical to me because yeah. it's branded under this umbrella of like camaraderie and friendship and liberal values. And, you know, it, it, it's, again, it's like kind of replacing the impetus to actually do something productive with um, consumer behavior. It's like, go out and buy your way to feeling like you did something. Yeah. Well, I also, I also feel like um, progressive politics has kind of become like the, uh, the self-help movement. Um, of like getting yeah. together around all these people who are just basically unhappy and trying to yeah, commiserate. Yeah. Find something together. Yeah. And that, that's an easy group of people to sell to. Yeah. But even still, like if you look at some of the, at this OZ fest thing, if you look at some of the names up there or look at some of the names, this thing's in its third year, you look at some of the names before, if it was a progressive event, you would have five, six people, maybe 10 people. I don't know. You'd have everybody up there talking about things like, um, you know, universal health care or uh, K through 12 education or um, student debt loan forgiveness. You look up there and you see, and I know this was last year, not this year, but you see Jeb Bush. You know, this is not an event that's going to be talking about real progressive issues. This yeah. is more just the literati the anti-Trump, the we're too smart for uh, for the prevailing awfulness that's happening in the country right now. So we're going to get together here and, um, you know, and pride ourselves on being better than it. Meanwhile, completely out of power and having no influence on the actual discourse of what's happening in the country. I forget who it was who said it. There was a comedian who is talking about how, you know, yes, fuck Trump, but like like just getting up on stage and saying fuck Trump is like the cheapest laugh imaginable, yeah. you know, the yeah. cheapest applause line. Um, and that that's seems to be what it is. <laughs> oh yeah. It's like the, it's like the, how many of y'all like sex? Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like cheapest and easiest fucking thing to say without it actually saying anything. Yeah. Um, so a few quick news items are, uh, Tuesday episode came out the day after the pick of, um, <laughs> Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court. We didn't talk about it on that episode so because we, we, had we were talking about my favorite movies instead yeah. of the Supreme Court pick, which is cool. I support yeah. that. I absolutely yeah. support that. It's important. That. It's important. 
I think everybody knew, and our next guest actually has a lot to say about it, which is why we're going to keep our little intro and our outro really short this week because we spent about an hour with our next guest um, talking about these issues and diving back into them. Uh, but the, um, I think it, a lot of people knew that there were going to be changes to the makeup of the Supreme Court during the course of a Trump presidency, and that's it's just happening now. It's happening a year and a half in instead of, I don't know, five years in or whatever. And um, so... I'm not, I'm not, frankly, I'm not that interested in it. I mean, we can talk, have somebody in to talk about Kavanaugh's voting record. I saw my cell phone light up with 20 different, you know, 538 Vox podcasts, and, you know, the, just today that was, that were promising to tell me everything I ever wanted to know about Kavanaugh's um, judicial record. And it's, it's fucking conservative. Oh my God. Like <laughs> what a shock. Yeah. It's fucking far, far right. Holy shit. Who would have thought? And um, but more interesting than that, I think, is the responses from senators just keeping in a nice long line of disappointments and just <laughs> boring, underwhelming things that he does with his with his, you know, massively powerful position. Bill Nelson, my senator here in Florida, my senator, Bill Nelson, uh, took to Twitter this morning and said, I look forward to meeting with Judge Kavanaugh to discuss his views on several issues such as protecting women's rights guaranteeing access to health care for those with pre-existing conditions and protecting the right to vote. Just to name a few. I'll make my decision after that. Wrong answer. Fucking wrong answer. There's no situation where it's acceptable to even, to even if you are a Democrat, if you're in any state, I don't care if it's red or blue, with a if you're if you're a sitting senator with a D next to your name, it's completely unacceptable to entertain a single Republican nomination uh, for from for the Supreme Court. It's a no. The moment that they're nominated, I don't care who they are. It's a no. It's always a no because mm-hmm. that's the way that the rules have to work from now on. Um, and I just the thing that I can't imagine is who are the people that Bill Nelson is going to win over by doing that. Who are the people that are like so committed to comedy and to, you know, um, bipartisanship who haven't made up their minds about who they're going to, because Bill Nelson's running against Rick Scott, the governor of Florida. He's running his Senate seat and um, new polling out today shows that he's losing. He's going to get his ass kicked. We're going to have two Republican senators, most likely, which I've been saying for months, maybe almost a year now, um, that we're going to have two Republican senators, that Rick Scott does a better job at confusing Puerto Ricans into thinking that he's not a Republican. And so that if you read the, the a lot of the um, the crosstabs of the data that's out there, it shows that, Republi- that uh, Puerto Ricans, recent arrival Puerto Ricans, are actually supporting Rick Scott. And the only reason for that is because as, in his position as governor, they've basically been duped into thinking that he's there to help them. And he's he hasn't done a single thing for them really. Um, So Bill Nelson's going to lose that seat and he's fighting for every vote right now. I can't picture who the person is. That's like, you know what? I voted for Donald Trump and I vote down the line for Republicans, but Bill Nelson agreeing to sit down and talk uh, to judge Kavanaugh to the, to the Supreme court um, uh, appointment uh, nominee to the judicial nominee. That's changed my mind. Now I'm going to vote for a Democrat. That happens all the time. That happens that's... all the time. Oh. <laughs> that, the, the, and same thing, if I'm somebody who didn't vote last year, if I'm somebody who, 
couldn't get childcare or couldn't um, squeeze it into my schedule or was just generally disengaged. If there's anything that's going to get me up off of the uh, up off of my couch to go vote or get me to like try extra hard to get the day off of work to go vote, um, it's definitely the inside baseball of Supreme Court nominations <laughs> and the, the fact that my my senator, who I probably don't even know his name, uh, the, the, the fact that he um, is giving some other aging white guy a chance to have a, a historic position that it, I'm never going to physically see the effects of in front of me. I'll feel them all around me for the rest of my life as a, you know, a hard right Supreme court continues to make the country worse and worse, but yeah, sorry. Nobody, there's nobody out there who this olive branch is for. There's nobody out there who's going to give him a vote because he's doing this. It's really strange that, that that's even a, uh, a thing in politics is that 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 theory of those people existing it's really weird yeah oh my god yeah so the other thing i wanted to talk to you about is have you noticed as the sun has come out as the summer has picked up and the heat has started to uh crest and one of the hottest summers that we've ever seen people are throwing on their bathing suits and they're going out into their pools their shared community pools in their apartment complexes which are really private pools but still they're sort of shared amongst all the residents dave no fewer than four hardcore racist incidents in (laughs) community pools just in the last week dude people one of them was a uh a, a white guy that was just demanding to see identification from a woman who based on her based on her um accent it sounded like she was uh, either Jamaican, uh, J- Jamaican, or or from the islands, because um, you don't see her because she's the one filming. Uh-huh. Uh, so he's like demanding to see this woman who lives in the apartment complex. Uh, her her identification. The one I saw today was um, a guy had gotten in the pool with his socks on, a black guy, and so they called the police for him getting <laughs> in the pool with the socks on. Um, there was the not a, not inside of a pool, but in like sort of a community park area, um, a, like what honestly just looked like a really drunk homeless guy screaming and yelling for um, a woman who was wearing a shirt uh, that had the Puerto Rican flag on it. Yeah, I saw it. that's screaming, the one I saw. Yeah, screaming at her to go back to her country, get that shit out of the United States. <sighs> um, and then, oh, yeah, and then there was a one. I think this was maybe like two or three weeks ago, actually, but where the lady just started like wailing on some kids with uh, with her flip flop that some black kids and like and smacking their phone out of the, their phone out of their hands and um, telling them that they don't belong with like the kid did belong. He lived in the apartment complex. But um, th- so my thing is that like these pool complexes are the new Starbucks because that's the other place. There's not a lot of places in our culture right now where you're sort of forced to go shoulder to shoulder with a bunch of people who, um, you know, who aren't like you, we've mostly cloistered ourselves off. Right. And, and, uh, I think mark my words that the apartment pool complex wars of 2018 are going to be, um, <laughs> are going to be pretty fucking epic. This is a bizarre thing. Um, and it's it's a fucking downer, as we knew we would get into on this episode, is some some good juicy downers. Um, 
But I, I wonder. I, I wonder if uh, <laughs> this is so ridiculous. But I wonder if if some of these people they have this feeling of superiority because they live in an apartment that has a pool, so that they they think they deserve to not have to see other kinds of people. You know. Yo, let me tell you something. If you're out there listening and you have you 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 have an air, you have a feeling of superiority because you live in an apartment that has a pool. You shouldn't. You think you should feel you, you should feel inferior. Think. You should feel inferior. Do you know that there are people that live in houses that have pools all to themselves? <laughs> Do you know that Jewish Dave has a hot tub <laughs> that leaks constantly? But he has it. It attracts bugs and rodents. But 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 it's his. It's what's all mine. It's all Guess mine, what? baby. It's his. I could have one if I wanted to easily. You I want, choose not. You to. want mine? <laughs> I could have a full pool in my backyard. You are a piece of shit. <laughs> Wait, who are you talking to? Right? <laughs> I'm ta- kind of talking to you a little bit. But mostly, I'm talking to these fucking pool Nazis. Yeah, and <laughs> uh, they're they're uh, they're uh, they're patriots, and they're they're doing. Uh, yeah, they're, they're, they're doing. Sure they're, they're doing their Lord Emperor Trump's work, is what they're doing. Let's go to our A block, Dave. Yes, let's do it. So Dave, what do you um what do you think about our prospects? Not just progressives generally, but the left overall, like Democrats, midterms, twenty twenty, state by state elections. I mean, wh- how do you feel right now? Uh, not good. Um, generally not good. It, it feels like Trump will probably be president forever. Um, yeah, like his head will just be in a jar, pickled and uh, running things. Um, I, I kind of think. When I think back about the first time I felt that way, like it felt like there was this this sort of overarching gravity or disadvantage against anybody who was on the left. I, I think back to our sophomore year, you know, when everybody overnight kind of became politically aware with Bush when the Bush Gore saga was sort of dragging on. And, um, you know, it, it kind of just felt like it was fighting a losing battle in some ways. Right. Well, we saw that in 2016, um, you know, so many more people were voting Democrat across the country than they did for Republicans. But somehow the Republicans still got the White House and maintain advantages across Congress and even picked up state house and governorships. And like, that's not an accident. It's not imaginary to their credit. Conservatives have been really good at playing this long game and waging this sort of like asymmetrical war on the country. And um, how the government staffed, how how representatives are elected, and and today they do have control of basically every every chamber of of government, despite the fact that Democrats outnumber them and the public generally supports progressive positions, like on a on a position by position basis. Right, I mean, that's really on every issue. The left position is always more popular than the right position, at least pretty much always, and uh, it just doesn't seem to translate to the voting booth. So. Exactly. That's why we have our next guest on. He's the author of It's Time to Fight Dirty, How Democrats Can Build a Lasting Majority in American Politics. It's available on Amazon. Um, it came out back in April, basically a lifetime ago, as measured by news cycles. Uh, he's the uh, program director of political science at Roosevelt University, and his name is David Ferris. David, welcome to Bird Road. Hey, thanks for having me on the show. Um, so, 
This is a very good book. It's not super long, unlike a lot of books in its sort of category. It's <laughs> it's a, a quick light read, um, right to the point. Cutting, um, yeah, it, it kind of outlines a, a way for Demo- how, how Democrats could act a little bit more like Republicans. Strong. Uh, I'm giving it a strong recommend. Um, it's also a little, <laughs> it's a little cathartic to read, especially during during days like this. And um, I was going to ask you how it feels to have to release a new edition of a book almost three months after <laughs> after it comes out. <laughs> um, but that's not really accurate. I mean, I'm reading the book and a lot of the stuff that you that you that you that you outline and we'll get to that. Um, it holds up. I mean, even with the, you know, sort of like I said before, asymmetric uh, developments over the last few weeks. It's still pretty on point. It's holding up really well. Has anything from um, the hard right swerve of the Supreme Court, the sort of the more brutal developments along the border, anything, any other things in the past intervening three months changed your mind on any of the prescriptions that you laid out in the book? Not really. You know, I mean, I think um, the behavior of the Trump administration in a variety of different ways has has just hardened me and on on my proposals here, particularly um, on the Supreme Court idea about you know enlarging the Supreme Court. That was um, that was the chapter that I lost sleep over, you know, when I was writing it because I thought it was a little bit radical, um, and I thought it would be received poorly. Um, and now, <laughs> now if I could go back and rewrite it even more, sort of vociferously, I would do it. You know, I mean, um, just this this administration is just it's lawless, you know, and and not just lawless, but they're they're governing in a way that seems deliberately divisive, deliberately cruel. Um, and this is, uh, you know, I just think it's important to remember that this is a minority government, you know, this is a, is a government elected with a minority of the vote. Um, and they're not acting like that. You know, they're acting like they got a mandate from 60% of the country to do some of the things that they're doing and they didn't. Um, so in, in my mind, it just, it's just sort of reinforced my sense that the electoral system failed us, um, that Democrats have to fight really ruthlessly. And then when we get back into power, we have to do some things to make sure that this never happens again. So my work calls for me a lot of times to back when I was a reporter and now, you know, working in communications, I drive around a lot in the middle of the day. And um, before it became just too insufferable, I used to listen to, uh, you know, just, just out of morbid curiosity, Limbaugh and Hannity and Glenn Beck, particularly Limbaugh and Glenn Beck are, I mean, horrible human beings, but incredibly gifted broadcasters. I wish I was half the broadcaster that these two sons of bitches are. But um, I, I would find it fascinating when I would listen to these shows, the AM conservative radio, what they think liberals and Democrats are and like how Machiavellian they think they, they are and how underhanded and devious. And in my mind, I'm thinking, I, A, I, you know, that's very disconnected from reality. And B, I, I really wish they were more like that. But that's kind of what's at the core of this book, right? Be- becoming better at winning in what's becoming no holds barred uh, environment or you know, electoral process. Yeah, and no, I mean, absolutely. I mean, this this idea, and, and I get this, you know, in my Twitter mentions from people on the right when they're like, the Democrats have been doing this for years. They always fight dirty. And I'm like, really? Like, I, you know, I don't remember that. You know, I, I remember when we had total control of government, we, we abided by the filibuster rules. And, and so we didn't get as much done as we wanted to. Um, some of the stuff in this book we could have done in 2009 and we didn't do it, you know? Um, and I guess more broadly, you know, the idea that the Democrats, uh, are, are some sort of, uh, deeply strategic and, um, a ruthless block of, uh, obstructionists or something is just crazy. I mean, we just gave 17 votes 
in the Senate to the rollback of Dodd Frank, Dodd -Frank you know? like uh, and so that that it's just it's just not true. Yeah, um, and and meanwhile, and, Doug Jones is 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 refusing to commit to he he's open to hear whatever um, whatever <laughs> Supreme Court nominees Donald Trump has to offer. So. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I wonder if it'll be a white guy voting to overturn Roe v. Wade or a white guy voting to overturn Roe v. Wade or a white guy voting to overturn Roe v. Wade. It's a really big mystery. Can't wait for tonight. <laughs> um, so let's let's outline this problem a little bit so our our, our listeners know what we're talking about. Um, give some context. Our our when you look at it, our upper chamber of the legis of our legislative branch, the Senate, is com completely unrepresentative because most Democrats live in few very a few very large states. It ends up not being a body that really carries out the will of the people. And because of the Electoral College, the Democrats will almost always face an uphill battle to win the presidency. And then finally, everything that we value in this process and in our government emanates from this very deified, but at the same time, this very flawed document, the U.S. Constitution. Is that about the, the scope of it as you see it? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, there's there's two kinds of problems facing Democrats in our contemporary politics. You know, one the, one are a set of constitutional design flaws or constitutional ambiguities, um, like the U.S. Senate. You know, so the 38 million people of California get the same two senators as the 700,000 people of Wyoming or North Dakota. Or, you know, pick a tiny state. You know, um, and they're they're vastly overrepresented in the U.S. Senate. Um, and then you have sort of the, the Constitution, which is a, an extremely short document. You know, you could you could uh, read it on your lunch break, and um, it doesn't spell out some of the procedures that it that it contains. You know, so it says that the Senate uh, gives advice and consent to the president on his nominations to the executive branch, but it doesn't say what that is. You know, does it does, uh, does that mean hearings? Does that mean you have to do it? Um, does that mean that consent can be withheld for no particular reason, as it was in 2016 with Merrick Garland? Um, so the, the design flaws are things like the Senate, the structure of the Senate, the Electoral College. Um, the ambiguities are things like advice and consent, where Republicans have pressed their advantage in places where the Constitution doesn't really spell things out um, particularly clearly. Uh, so in other words, they're, they're sort of pushing the boundaries of legality where they can um, on, on things like the Supreme Court and also things like voting rights. Um, and so when you combine those two things, um, it means that Democrats are fighting pretty much every national election that we have in this country at a distinct disadvantage. Um, and they have to, you know, they have to win by more than you should have to win by in order to win. And so we frequently lose elections that we actually won because of these, these procedures. Um, what is an anti-system party? What do you mean when you describe the uh, Republicans that way? Sure. Uh, anti this is a concept that comes out of a, a Italian political scientist named Giovanni Sartori. Um, and he did a lot of work on political parties in Europe in the, in the 60s, 70s, and, and 80s. Um, and he defined an anti-system party as a, a sort of an organization that wants to change um, not just the government in power, uh, but the very system of government itself. Um, and I, so um, I'm thinking of somebody like a, like a communist party mm -hmm. running in elections in a, in a continental European like proportional representation system. Right? Like they're participating in the process, but you know, the end result of them winning would be a radical sort of change to the actual, you know, political order in that country. And so I, I think I started to think of Republicans as an anti-system party during the Obama administration when they really stopped behaving um, in ways that we had gotten accustomed to our political elites behaving when in office or under divided government. Um, and that would be, <clears throat> you know, cooperating with the with the president's party, um, you know, not not like rolling over for him, but um, but coming to some sort of an agreement about 
taxes and spending and, uh, and changing legislation to suit the, the needs or the interests of the minority party. Um, during the Obama administration, they just stopped doing that. You know, um, they, they radically escalated the, the court wars by refusing to, to confirm uh, President Obama's nominees to the, to the federal judiciary. Uh, they took the country hostage uh, with, the, with the debt crisis. Um, and these are all, you know, the, the, for our system of government to work, it really it requires constant compromise between the two parties, you know, I mean, on a daily basis, uh, particularly in the U.S. Senate. And when Republicans withdrew that, um, that sense of compromise and that, that sense of, uh, of fair play, um, I think that they really want to usher in a very different kind of political system altogether. Uh, in other words, they don't, they don't believe that the informal rules of American politics apply to them. Uh, and because the informal rules are so important to the overall functioning of the system, I feel justified in calling them an anti-system party. Um, and I th they're very dangerous, you know, because their rhetoric is, uh, is meant to delegitimize the left and delegitimize Democrats as people who could possibly govern the country. I was going to ask a quick question to follow up to that. Do you think they have any kind of uh, like a long game with doing that? Or is it just keep power, keep power, keep power? Well, I mean, I think the hardcore ideologues on the right, um, their dream has always been something that some of them call the Constitution in exile. Um, and that is the Constitution, uh, as, it, you know, as they see as it existed prior to the New Deal um, and prior to the sort of the change in, in jurisprudence on the Supreme Court that legitimized a lot of FDR's ideas for the New Deal. Um, and so the Constitution in exile means a radical reduction in the federal government's ability to, to, to tax and spend citizens um, and then use that money on the general welfare. So it would be like uh, declaring the Social Security Act unconstitutional um, or, or some potential Medicare for all proposal unconstitutional. Um, and they want what they really want is to return um, levels of national spending to, to levels from the 1890s or, or early 1900s. Um, and, you know, this is something that, that the sort of hardcore radicals on the right have been, have been trying to do for 80 years and failing. Um, and now they are really, I think, at the precipice of being able to do that with this uh, fifth Supreme Court seat. So it's really scary. Well, and it's, it's a really unique moment right now because I think they found a very a partner in an unholy marriage with with Donald Trump who honestly I grew up in the 80s in New York he's he was not an right. overtly political figure I mean Dave you did too you remember yeah, he was more absolutely. of a clown and 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 kind of a you know just what we what we had come to know him as to this point but the one overriding um what what you said David is like actually rem reminds me of this a lot I heard him I heard him described or his modus operandi described recently as finding systems of honor systems and just taking advantage of them, like stepping into anything where it's not like the rules aren't codified. They're just norms or traditions and just thrashing the norms and traditions and, and not caring about the, the, the aftermath of, of that behavior, not caring about the social ostracization, uh, ostracization, which I'm not even sure is a word. And, um, <laughs> and it, 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 it just reminds me of, of a Republican party that refused to even give Merrick Garland, um, you know, a, a, not just an up or down vote, but a hearing even. Um, so it's, it, it's like, again, one of the things that jumped out at me in your book was, uh, the realization that Merrick Garland was probably the last time. Actually, we will probably, and I agree wholeheartedly with you. I mean, we're not, we're probably not ever going to see a president who's able to appoint a reasonable candidate 
and get that candidate through an opposing controlled Senate ever again. Now, I mean, that's not that's not beyond the pale to say, right? No, I mean, I think th- those are the new rules, right? I mean, uh, Republicans will say um, there was some sort of norm or precedent that you don't get a Supreme Court pick in an election year, uh, a presidential election year. <clears throat> and they point back to um, 1968 when LBJ was trying to num- uh, to elevate Abe Fortas to, to the position of Chief, Ju- Chief Justice. Um, and, the, and he got filibustered. Um, and that was, you know, there are not a lot of openings in election years for good reason, right? Because justices don't want to step aside during election year anyway. Um, and it's just, a, it's kind of a lottery. Um, but, but it's a, it's a totally false reading of history because Senate, uh, Republicans held hearings for Fortis, right? And so if they believed that LBJ didn't have the right to do this at all, um, they wouldn't have held those hearings. They would have done right. what Republicans did in 2016, um, which is refused, refused to even consider the nominee. Um, and LBJ, one of the stupidest things he did as president was he just gave up after that. <laughs> yeah. Um, when they shot down Fortis as chief justice, he was like, well, okay, I mean, I guess Nixon will do it. <laughs> <laughs> Which is just unimaginable today, just right? A, just a quaint um, time. Just what a what a quaint time to think, I mean, to think of the yeah. the wide eyed, you know, <laughs> innocence. And we're I mean we're lucky that Nixon didn't appoint like total lunatics to that seat, right? I mean, like one of the reasons the Supreme Court is not super hard, right? Um, as of you know this morning, um, is is people like Gerald Ford appointing John John Paul Stevens uh, right. or Nixon appointing black men? You know, like uh, Republicans made some mistakes. Uh, according to the sort of Federalist Society theology of what the, what the court should be. Um, but yeah, I mean, Garland was, I don't think, I, I really don't think Republicans understand what a monumental escalation uh, of sort of political warfare that was. Because um, they're like, well, Harry Reid eliminated the filibuster for, for lower court picks. And it's like, yeah, okay. Well, the escalation of that would be to eliminate the filibuster for the Supreme Court, not to steal the seat and eliminate the filibuster, right? It's like a double escalation. Um, and, it's, and it's very dangerous. I mean, it's one of the reasons I think um, that the ideal resolution of this problem would be a truce in the, in the form of a constitutional amendment. But I just don't think Republicans are going to go for it. And I, and I think they need to pay for Merrick Garland. It's like they really need to pay for it. So th- that's sort of leading us into the real meat of the book, which is the solutions that you're outlining there. And uh, let's start with that. Let's start with the Supreme Court. Explain for those of us who our entire lives have been spent, I think everybody on this phone call right now, entire lives have been spent with a, with a nine member, you know, a status quo member, um, uh, Supreme Court size. That's not the way that it has to be, right? No, not at all. I mean, the Constitution, again, leaves a lot of things to the imagination, um, one of which is the number of people on the Supreme Court. Um, the number nine is not in the Constitution. Uh, we've had a 10-person Supreme Court. We've had a seven-person Supreme Court. Um, the court was packed before. Um, so uh, Republicans re- reduced it from nine to seven um, uh, at the end of Andrew Johnson's term and then re-raised it to nine um, when a Republican succeeded him so that they could they could pack the court with Republicans. No, this was back when Republicans were like, you know, relatively speaking, the good guys. So um, I think histor- history doesn't remember that as poorly as they do um, FDR's attempt to add justices, but that's what happened. Um, so just like this, the Constitution doesn't require the Senate to consider a president's nominee, the Constitution also doesn't prevent um, a congressional majority with the um, cooperation of the president to enlarge the court. Um, it's perfectly constitutional. FDR's proposal in, in 1937 was perfectly constitutional. So in my mind, um, the perfectly constitutional theft of Merrick Garland's seat should be met with the perfectly constitutional enlargement of the Supreme Court to, to the liberal majority that it should have right now. Um, 
what Republicans should be doing right now is uh, is filling their fourth seat on the court um, in, a, in a five to four liberal majority. Like that's that's the way it should be if the informal rules of Amer- American politics had been followed in 2016, and they weren't. And so, in my mind, Democrats have, have all the right in the world to, to pack the courts the next time they're in power. And what does that mean? Like, how does that functionally happen? Is is it just a a, a presidential decree? I mean, how, what, what's the what's the legislative process for that? Oh, sure. Um, it's just, a, you know, it's an act of Congress. So, um, you know, bill, the bill could originate in the House or the Senate. Um, it would, uh, let's say that we're, we're in a world where Ruth Bader Ginsburg keeps keeps on planking and, uh, and Breyer uh, eats his yogurt and they both, they both survive <laughs> to 2021. And, um, and we have this 5-4 conservative majority on the court. Um, the, the next Democratic president, assuming that we have a Democratic House and a Democratic Senate, um, could, uh, could have Congressional allies draft a bill enlarging the Supreme Court to 11 members. Um, Democrats could fill those seats very quickly um, within a matter of months. Um, and then we'd have a 6-5 majority on an 11-person court. Um, and we could also at the same time enlarge the, the other pieces of the judiciary. So we haven't added a, a, a circuit court of appeals um, in 40 years. Uh, a, a lot of those district and appellate courts are overworked um, just as a nonpartisan matter. So you could create new circuits. Um, you could simply pass a bill, you know, adding judges to all the existing circuits. So there's lots of things that people can do. It's well within their constitutional power. Um, and there's there's a little bit of me that hopes just the threat would be enough to, to have Republicans come to, the, come to the table and and hammer out a constitutional compromise that uh, that defines the Senate's obligations for these nominees, that routinizes the appointment process. So that every president gets the gets the right to appoint two justices per four year term, um, and we, he would do that by capping service on the court at eighteen years. Um, but that requires an amendment. So um, if Republicans wouldn't go for that, you know, it's like okay, you know, well, we gave you a chance. <laughs> Yeah, this the, is what we're going to do. The effect of that is interesting because it keeps sort of fresher, younger blood in the uh, the rule the, the 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 seats that actually rule on cases, right? Yeah, and I, I and I think it's I think it's more in keeping with the with what the founders imagined because in in seventeen eighty seven, you know, if you made it to age sixty, it was a, it was a miracle. Yeah, <laughs> like you were some sort of demigod. Um, and so the idea that people would serve until they're like eighty seven years old on the Supreme Court. I think would have struck the founders as, as, as a terrible thing because it, what it does is it allows like a long dead ideological minority to continue to dominate the court for another generation. Um, you know, it's the fact that, I mean, let's talk about Anthony Kennedy, you know, Anthony Kennedy was appointed in 1987. Um, when I think about half the country hadn't been born yet. Um, the fact that this guy was still deeply affecting our politics, um, is demented. It was demented before he resigned and it's, it's pretty demented today. Um, so I think an amendment that caps service at 18 years would, as you say, would ensure that you get new ideological thinking and a court that more closely reflects the actual um, ideological divisions in American society, um, rather than this philosophy that we have to be rigidly adhering to the to the text of this 235 um, year old document. You know. Yeah, and Clarence Thomas is just like a shadow of the dynamic legal figure he used to be, right? <laughs> the guy who has said maybe five five words in the past twenty years. I feel like the energy has really gone out of the staring at the ceiling. You know, not the <laughs> he's not into it anymore. Yeah, he's not feeling it. Um, so your, your next solution uh, is one that I think, and I, you might agree with me that this one is one of the more. Um, not easily attained, but more likely to happen ones. And then it holds special meaning to me as a Puerto Rican uh, family, all from the island. And um, 
it it, it, it involves uh, Washington D.C. and Puerto Rico achieving statehood. My question would be, like specifically with Puerto Rican Puerto Rico, why didn't this happen ten years ago when it seemed like, based on yeah. the, the prescriptions in your book, it seemed like this is something. That could have happened 10 years ago. And I think there was still a pretty fresh plebiscite on the table at that time. Um, give us some, some, some context about why these clearly morally problematic uh, non-representation citizens exist, or unrepresented citizens exist, and then what could happen in the future and how that would play out. Sure. I mean, I mean let's start at the basic level, um, which is that Washington, D.C. And, and Puerto Rico are, are part of the United States. Uh, they're full of birthright American citizens who have no voting representation in Congress whatsoever. Um, I think it's been, uh, I think DC has been a little bit more high profile um, because there was an actual vote in the house in, in 1993 that was defeated for DC statehood. Um, and there've been, there's been a kind of a long discussion that took place over the course of the 20th century um, about how to be more inclusive with voting rights for DC. So uh, DC was given electoral votes um, with a constitutional amendment. But, but they still have no representation in Congress, which is just unconscionable. Um, and so, you know, as to why it didn't happen um, under the Obama administration and the same with Puerto Rico, um, I think that the, I think the statehood movements in both places were just in a, they were in a different spot in 2010. And I think that the Democrats in Congress were just focused on other things. Like I, I think that healthcare and financial reform were uh, such overwhelmingly important priorities for that Congress that they didn't consider other things. And I think there was also an arrogance of power. Um, you know, I felt it too, where it was like, man, we really crushed him in 08, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. like there's something has really changed in this country. Um, and so I, you know, didn't think that we needed more votes in the Senate at the time, but we clearly do. Um, and so I, I think that things have really changed. I, I think one of the biggest problems with Puerto Rico is that, um, there's always been some ambiguity in terms of what um, what the citizens of the island really want. Um, one of the one of the problems is there's, there's multiple choices, and so it's been hard to produce a majority for any of them in these referenda um, because there's an independence movement for Puerto Rico. There's a there's a large group of Puerto Ricans who want to to maintain the status quo with maybe a slight alteration, and then there's people that want statehood. Um, and so, in the in the referendum that took place last year, uh, the independence folks boycotted it. Um, and that means that the, the turnout was pretty low, even though the result was overwhelmingly in favor of statehood. Um, so I think, um, you know, I recommend in the book that, that they do the next referendum with ranked choice voting um, so that you could, you know, if, you're, if your heart is with independence, um, you can vote for independence first and then rank statehood or the status quo second so that, you know, uh, we get a majority for something. And then that will send a much clearer signal to Congress that that's something is what Puerto Rico really wants. Um, I, I hope that it's statehood. I think that's the best, uh, I think that's the best option for the island. Um, but it's, you know, I, I don't, I'm, I'm not Puerto Rican. It's not my, it's not my decision, but I, I hope that they, I hope that that's what they would choose. Um, and in a, in a partisan sense, this DC and Puerto Rico statehood would almost certainly add four democratic senators to the Senate. Like we'd have the Senate right now, uh, if we had done this, uh, during the Obama administration. So it's just, it's enormously important because, Democrats have this significant disadvantage in the U.S. Senate. Like, there's probably 30 Republican-leaning states and 20 Democratic-leaning states. So we're going to lose it more often than we win unless we get creative. Yeah, our, our family here is a is a statehood family. This house on Bird Road is a state family is a is a state mm-hmm. status house. It's a we are not in the, in, you know snake oil salesmen <laughs> independentistas. <laughs> yeah, right. that's a whole separate 
one day we'll do a deep dive episode, an hour and a half of Puerto Rican, you know, intramural politics and all the parties and the PNP and everything like that, but not, not this episode. <laughs> um, so uh, that w- those two are pretty solid ground. I think that even you in the book admit that your next proposal's a, a, a bit less likely. And I wasn't sure why until I talked to a few of my friends from California. Um, you propose a six, <laughs> a six state California split up, which would, um, like I said, be a little more difficult to accomplish. I have liberal friends in California. Shocker. Yeah. That they're liberal. Um, <laughs> who, I outlined the proposal with them. I shared it on sh- social media and they just sort of had this real visceral, almost like nationalistic, but more on a state level nationalistic. I don't know what the word would that team spirit, I guess. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Uh, pride, more like a prideful <laughs> reaction. Uh, make the case for those people about why six Californias makes more sense for like the health of our overall democracy. Sure. Um, so I actually think it should be seven, um, but I don't, I mean, I don't care that much about the number. It could be seven or six. It could be three. Three is going to be on the ballot this November, right. um, which would be better than one. Um, I think the case, you know, the thing that I've heard most often from Californians uh, is that uh, because of its size, uh, California has sort of over oversized importance in national policymaking. So when California sets standards for, for automakers, for existence, for, for, for instance, on, you know, emissions or something, the automakers have to listen because California is so huge that they can't be ignored or, you know, the writing of, of history textbooks or, or whatever. Um, but I think, you know, I think California's importance as a large state or, or the importance of large states generally in contemporary politics is a little bit overblown um, because the reality is, uh, and I can tell you this from, from experience in Illinois, um, that it's very difficult to, to build sustainable progressive policies if you don't have the federal government helping you out and paying for them. Um, so the, the idea that you can build a, a sort of progressive utopia in California while Republicans control the national government, um, I think it's just not, it's just not going to stand up. Um, you see this in the way that the Trump administration is going after California on things like sanctuary cities. Um, I think you'll see a very robust effort to roll back any regulations that are different in California than they are um, for the federal government. And in the long run, I don't think uh, I don't think that it advantages Californians to stick together as a as a 38 million person group uh, any more than it would be to break them up into six or seven, uh, all of which would be heavily Democratic states um, if you draw the lines carefully. Um, so, in my mind, uh, you, you know, if you if you just if you sit a Californian town and you say like, what would you rather see happen right now? Um, would you rather have your your huge uh, important California? Or would you rather control the U.S. Senate um, and block the, the President Trump's Supreme Court appointments? Um, that to me is just like a no-brainer um, because the that those Supreme Court justices are going to make such far-reaching decisions that will impact California, um, that will override any sense of progressive uh, social justice uh, thinking that the Californians have or, or the influence that they wield by virtue of being a large state. I think will eventually be overwhelmed um, by the political right in this country if we don't do something creative. Like, like break California up. Um, and I, I think another standard objection is like, there's no way to draw the, the borders in California without creating a Republican state. Um, and that's just, it's just not true. Um, the, yeah, the that's changing. That's not, that's not really the case anymore, especially like with Orange County and yeah. Yeah. I mean, Orange, Orange County went for a Demo- went for Clinton. It was the first time they'd gone for a Democrat since, uh, since FDR. Um, and so basically every day, you know, that the sun shines on, on California, beautiful state <laughs> I would love to live in. Um, it is the most left-wing day uh, of that state's existence. 
And so the, the proposal that's on the table right now, uh, the three California's proposal, would have, they, all three of those states would have gone for Clinton in 2016. Um, I think one of them would be kind of purple, um, but they, it would lean Democratic. It's, it's sort of like uh, Virginia. Um, and so in all likelihood, um, you'd have six senators out of the state of California instead of two. If that if that proposal passes in November, which I think it won't, uh, for for precisely the reasons that you outline, yeah. um, I think it's a <clears throat> it's a tough argument to make. I mean, I, I and I, I knew that going, and I, I guess I was surprised by um, quite the level of hostility <laughs> that it's been received with, even by people who are who are on the left. Um, but it's you know I understand that, and I'm not again I'm not a Californian, so it's um, it should be it should obviously be up to the people of California to do this or not to do this. Um, but I think that if we don't do something. Um, we're not going to hold the Senate for, for multiple cycles, which is what we really need to do if, if we want um, to bring real progressive change to the country in the long term. So I think a lot of these solutions uh, are immediately understandable and obvious for a lot of people. The last one, you might have to do a little bit more explaining about this. And and for, for context, recently there was one of these really shitty like uh, clickbait articles that came out saying that, uh, you know, a huge survey had found that Taco Bell was the best Mexican food in the U S <laughs> and oh, if you, if you read into the, the, the methodology of the survey that was given from, um, you know, one of these polling firms that is really just trying to get people to write about their products or their, their clients, what, what it was is, you know, uh, here's 20 different, uh, Mexican places. Most of them aren't nationwide. Most of them don't have relevance to the majority of the the people taking the survey. And then by the time you get to the third or fourth choice, you're like, yeah, I guess Taco Bell is maybe my fourth favorite Mexican place to go. And because Taco <laughs> Bell, by virtue of having tens of thousands of restaurants, ends up being the, the top one. So you mentioned ranked choice voting a, a little bit ago. Talk about what ranked choice voting means and why we won't end up with Taco Bell as president. Or more, more specifically, um, explain to us like an example of an election that we know that would have maybe played out differently if it was in a ranked choice vote environment. Yeah. I mean, first of all, I'd prefer the Taco Bell Chihuahua as president to, to what we currently have in the office. So. Got him. One of their burritos. Yeah. Um, so ranked choice voting is a system of voting where instead of voting for one candidate, um, you are allowed to rank order all of the candidates on the ballot um, in order of your preference for them. Um, so that if your first choice is eliminated and there's like, you know, there's a mathematical formula for every district where you're doing this. Uh, if you, you know, if you vote for the green party candidate and the green party candidate doesn't make it, um, they don't throw your ballot away. Um, they take your ballot and they, they look at who you voted for a second. Um, and if that person is still in contention, they give your vote to that person as if you voted for them first, if that makes sense, you know, so that person gets your vote. Um, so I recommend ranked choice voting for the House of Representatives um, for, for a variety of reasons. Um, one is to bring more political parties into our process. Um, more than 50% of Americans say that they want a third or fourth choice um, beyond the Democrats and Republicans. Um, and I'm, a, you know, I'm like a hardened Democratic partisan, but I also um, I sense that, that many of my fellow people uh, Leftists want uh, another choice beyond the Democrats, and I think that they should have it. Um, and so, if we took and we used ranked choice voting for Congress, it would really be transformative um, in terms of uh, the number of parties that could be in Congress, but also the proportionality of the results. Um, and that's the second important reason that we need to do this, um, because right now, I, I'm sure you've seen the articles where it's like Democrats have to win 
the national popular vote for the, for the house by, you know, five to 11%. Right. Yeah. It's completely weighted. Yeah. It's completely weighted. And we all just, at this point, we're just like, well, yeah, obviously, I mean, you know, obviously we have to win by, you know, by 11%. Yeah, we just take uh, it as a control the house of representatives. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're like, oh yeah, of course. Yeah, of course. It's, it's, uh, it's messed up. It's totally tilted against us. That's fine. Let's do it. Um, and so, yeah, obviously in 2018, we need to, you know, we, we need to win on this tilted um, playing field against us. Um, but the, those calculations come from two things. Um, one, one is gerrymandering. Um, so that most states allow the legislature in conjunction with the governor to draw the district lines for the House of Representatives. Um, and for, you know, for a long time in American history, political parties, when they have control of, of a state, total control of a state, um, what they call a trifecta, uh, it's just expected that they will draw the district lines to benefit themselves and to disadvantage their opponents. Um, typically, you, you trap your opponents in a small number of, of districts that they will win overwhelmingly. And then uh, the remainder of the districts you want to have a you know roughly a 55 to 45 advantage. Uh, so that it's basically impervious to a wave election. So that's how you get um, 13 Republicans and five Democrats out of Pennsylvania, um, which is an evenly divided state, but whose congressional delegation uh, prior to Connor Lamb <clears throat> was 13 to five Republican Democrat. Um, and Republicans were able to do this because they won, they won all these state legislative elections in 2010. Um, so that when the redistricting happened after the 2010 census, um, they were able to do this in state after state. Uh, in North Carolina and Ohio and Wisconsin and Michigan, um, they've just uh, they've built an enormous advantage for themselves um, just by drawing these district lines. Um, but that's not the only problem. The other problem is that um, you know Democrats increasingly live together in urban areas, and Republicans live together in, in these sort of exurban and, and suburban areas. So that like I mean I live in Chicago. Um, I don't have a single Republican friend. I wouldn't even know where to find one. You know, like I, I haven't talked to a Republican. I, the only time I talk to a Republican is when my dad calls. So it's like, um, and it's, it's, it's not good because it's actually, it would be hard to draw the 435 districts for the house fairly. Um, so that Democrats would have an even shot at the chamber. I mean, take gerrymandering out of the equation. Um, it would be hard. Uh, it would be hard to do just because of the, of where we are. Um, so what the proposal in the book, it comes from an organization called fair vote. Um, and they propose that instead of 435 single districts, um, for the house, which is what we have now, we would have three member or five member districts, um, elected by ranked choice voting. Um, and that would, first of all, it would eliminate gerrymandering from the face of the earth. Uh, like you wouldn't have to worry about it anymore. Right. Um, they, they actually challenged a data wizard to, 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 to gerrymander this map for Republicans that they've created. And the guy, you know, the person couldn't do it. Um, it would also, you know, it would give green, the Green Party or the Working Families Party or, or whoever. I, I actually think that there might be a different left party that we haven't even thought of yet. Uh, it would give them a real chance to win power in Congress. But, but most importantly... We would never again have what happened in 2012, um, which is when Democrats won more votes for the House, but still looked up at a, a huge Republican advantage um, after Election Day because of these factors. So it's another case where it's like, I, I actually think this is the the right thing to do in terms of small D Democratic practice. Like you want a legislature whose majority reflects the will of the voters. Yeah, something um, representative. Yeah, exactly. But it's also like, I mean, do you want to spend the rest of your life having to win the house election by six or seven points in order to take the chamber, you know, I mean, it's just crazy because the, those are wave election numbers. They're only going to come around every once in a while when people are so angry at the party in power that they're willing to do this. Um, the rest of the time, just like the Senate, Republicans will hold the house. Um, so even if you think, um, 
in, in most years, Democrats have a, uh, at least an, an even chance in the Electoral College. Um, you know, we'll have a Democratic president faced by a hostile Congress, and we'll just have the, you know, the latter term Obama nightmare <laughs> over and over and over again until we die. Um, <laughs> Unless we do something about it, because the the, the electoral system is, is not in the Constitution. Um, so there's not again, there's, like with most things in the book, there's nothing stopping the next Congress from passing a law changing the way that we vote for the House, um, having it signed by the president, and then that's the way it'll happen. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a it's a bit of a tougher sell than like statehood for DC or Puerto Rico. And it's a it's a tougher sell than a wholesale reform uh, of our voting laws, which is another thing I think we have to do. Um, and I'm skeptical that it's, it's going to happen, but I, it's another thing where I hope that we start the conversation, um, about how we can bring fairness to our, our elections for the house, because I'm frustrated. Uh, it was one of the things that really frustrated me about 2016, um, that Republicans have such a huge majority in the house, um, despite only winning the national popular vote by a single point. Um, so I think that we need to channel that frustration into, into creative, constitutional solutions for for our problems and, and that's definitely one of them i as a as a communications guy like i already have the like the rebuttal for uh, you know successful um mounting of this issue of, of of ranked choice like if i'm if i'm a republican my my campaign is we don't need more politicians and that's so <laughs> simple and so basic that it will cut right yeah. to the 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 like the smooth dumb brains of <laughs> exactly who I needed to get to. Well, you, do you really think the answer is more politicians? But yeah, uh, I know. I know. I also want to double the size of the house too, and that's yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> that's definitely vulnerable to that attack. <laughs> Democrats want to replicate themselves. <laughs> Clones are coming. They're coming for your guns. <laughs> Oh man! Yeah, the uh, so the Democrats have been in power before and recently, but their instinct always seems to be to work with the party that you are calling an anti-system party, um, and they they always want to just appeal to as many people as possible to get elected. So, you know, with that in mind, how do we actually make some of these things happen? How do we move forward with some of it? Well, I mean, I think in a lot of ways the president is doing our work for us. Um, you know, yeah, when, I, point. when I raised the issue of court packing a year ago, people looked at me like I was, um, you know, like Rodrigo Duterte, you know, like a, just, a, just a lunatic. Right. And now people are like, David, David, tell us more about this. Tell us more about this. Court right. packing, is it called court? Right. Packing? Yeah. And, now, and now Vox is calling like, yeah, court packing explained, you know, um, so it's, 17 simple uh, 17 simple paragraph uh, simple graphs that'll help you sleep at night no knowing that <laughs> Kennedy's replacement the embryo from the John Birch society is uh that that's being gestated right now won't eventually take away all your your reproductive rights <laughs> yeah exactly I, I mean I think uh, people are starting to, con to consider some some more radical ideas um, because I think we've only I think we've only felt like 15% of the consequences of, of electing this guy president. Um, and as we feel more and more of the repercussions of what happened in 2016, um, and as we see how hard it's going to be to take power back and then to exercise power under the current institutional constraints, I think people really are going to start asking questions about what we can do. Um, I think, so I think the best way of thinking about this is to imagine our fantasy scenario. You know, we take back, the House or the House and the Senate this year, 
Um, and then we get all three in 2020, you know, President Sanders or Warren or Gillibrand or whoever your fantasy president is, um, comes into office with like, you know, let's say a 20 seat advantage in the House and, a, you know, I'm being optimistic, 56, 44 in the Senate. I think that's about the upper boundary of what, what we can do. Um, what is what, what is that Democratic Party going to be able to achieve if they don't eliminate the filibuster? First of all, like the first thing that they do. Yeah. Um, just to get the Senate back means eliminating people like um, Dean Heller, uh, people like Jeff Flake, uh, the, the so-called moderates, people who would have been radicals 20 years ago but are now considered moderates, right? Those people will be gone. <laughs> the remaining ideological balance in the Senate will be with people like Ted Cruz and, uh, and Tom Cotton, uh, and Joni Ernst, uh, people who really are radicals, and they're not going to be in any mood to compromise with the Democrats. And I think the Democrats will see that pretty quickly. Um, and if, you know, if Chuck Schumer is still the, the party leader in 2021 under this scenario, and he's like, I won't eliminate the filibuster. That's a terrible, unfair thing to do. You know, and like, uh, you know, like let's have breakfast, you know, this kind of, this kind of stuff. Uh, I, I think that they're going to come to frustration very quickly. Uh, and within the first few months, when it becomes clear that we can't do anything outside of a reconciliation bill, uh, because we're wedded to the filibuster and we're wedded to these dead norms and we're wedded to the idea of have, you know, taking up Senate time with every single pick to the federal bench, all of which is bananas and we need to rethink. Um, I think people are going to start asking tough questions. Um, and I hope that those questions get asked before we lose the 2022 midterms. That's all I can say. <laughs> is, is there any evidence, by the way, that that um, these sort of political rudeness or, or uh, being mean to the norms and, and you know, what Harry Reid has done, what Mitch McConnell has done, uh, is there any evidence that you actually pay a price in the voting booth that people – uh, like assimilate that and and get angry about norms being violated or is this just sort of inside the beltway type 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 of uh you know pearl clutching yeah oh no one cares yeah no <laughs> your, your ordinary person doesn't i mean they don't know that much about the constitution i'm not being mean they just don't um and so i don't think i, I think if i if we did a poll i i doubt that more than one in ten people would know that the number of justices on the court is not in the constitution um, and I, I remember thinking back to 2016 when Republicans decided to hold that seat open. Um, and I just thought to myself, I was like, well, this is great, you know, because, uh, people are going to see this as such a gross violation uh, of democratic decency that they will turn out in November and, and like, you know, crush these Republicans uh, into dust. Um, and that's just, not only did not that happened. not happen, <laughs> um, they delivered total power to these guys. Um, you know, I mean, through some design quirks of the constitution, right? But, but they still did it. Um, and that really was evidence to me that no one cared about any of this stuff. Like no one, you know, no one cared, um, about the way the Republicans ran the house of representatives, you know, like uh, shutting Democrats out of hearings and, uh, the sort of the procedural warfare that they did in the house. Uh, they didn't care about holding Obama's, uh, judicial picks open, not just Garland, but like the whole, you know, like, I, don't, I don't think they confirmed more than 20 justices in 2015, 2016. Um, and I don't, I just don't think the average person cares, you know, I don't think they care at all. So I think there'd be a backlash to, to all of these things for sure. But I think the other thing to remember is that, you know, think back to 2009 during the debate over the stimulus and the ACA and, and Dodd-Frank, there was a backlash then too, you know, it, it doesn't matter what we do when there's a Democrat in power and they try to do anything. Uh, right. the right wing media is going to create this crisis yeah. narrative, uh, this, this narrative, you know, the left is coming for your guns and your religion and, and death you know, and, yeah. right, death <laughs> oh my God. Um, 
it doesn't matter what we do. We could like Democrats could go to DC and just like sit there, play with their fantasy football teams. Um, and, and Fox news would still be freaking out every night over, you know, like some sophomore at Kent state, you know, uh, wrote an op-ed they didn't like or something, you know, <laughs> like they're going to create, they're going to create a crisis narrative no matter what we do. So in my mind, I'd rather the backlash be against real changes to the political system, um, and real progressive policies rather than sort of holding back and, and hoping that people will, will reward us for sticking to norms that I, I think are just dead. Mm-hmm. <laughs> These norms are gone. Okay. So. Before you leave us, um, before we let you go, I want to do a quick potpourri lightning round style uh, reasons that Democrats are not in power. Jewish Dave's going to give you like a standard trope that gets trotted out recently, uh, you know, pretty frequently about why Democrats haven't won recently or don't hold any power. And you tell us on a scale from one to ten how valid or, or true the trope is and just a couple of couple lines about why. So, Dave. Okay. All right. Hit the first one. Democrats don't vote enough, especially not in midterms. Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, that's a seven. I mean, non-voting is a, is a huge problem in, in American democracy. Um, it's one of the reasons we need automatic voter registration nationally. Um, and yeah, I mean, Democratic turnout de- generally plunges during the midterms. Um, but it's also not that great during presidential election years. And if we know anything about non-voters, which is, you know, like 91 million eligible voters sat out the 2016 presidential election. They're just like, mm-hmm. yeah, whatever, you know, I don't care. <laughs> Either one of these is fine. Or I hate, I hate them both. Um, those 91 people tend to be um, less wealthy, less well-educated, um, uh, disproportionately minority. Um, and so those are, that's a pool of Democratic-leaning voters. So if we could figure out a way to get them to turn out, um, or if we could change our institutional structures to make it easier for them to turn out, um, that would be a, a significant boost, I think, to the fortunes of the left in the long run. Um, so, yeah, I, I agree. It's a big problem. Getting the coalition yeah. to turn out is a big problem. Um, it's also, you know, the reason it's a seven and not a ten um, is that there are these cyclical dynamics in American politics where when you get into power, you know, you tend to, like, if you're an average voter, you're a casual voter, you're not super into politics, and your team gets into power, you're like, okay, well, everything's cool now. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I don't have to turn out for the midterms. I don't need to take, I don't need to take that, uh, that personal day on Tuesday in the middle of November. <laughs> to, yeah. Yeah, that, that regular working Tuesday in November when it's already freezing in many parts of the country. Uh, great idea. Um, yeah, it's just like, well, you know, why should I turn out for my state legislative election? Like, what do those clowns do anyway? You know, um, so this, this kind of apathy comes with being in power. Um, and so there are, there is a, there's a part of this that I think is immune to anything that we could possibly do. It's just the party out of power is always going to be a little bit more motivated than the party in power. Yeah. And that, that he's, before you go to the next one, Dave, that's, that's a hundred percent right. I mean, we had Eileen Higgins on here the other day. She just recently won a, uh, a, a county seat here in Miami-Dade County that had been basically passed down generation from generation from Cuba to Cuban. And here comes this, this, uh, democratic, uh, this Democrat outsider, um, to, to swoop in. And I think it's exactly because of that dynamic, like, um, n- trying to be more involved when you know that you're out of power, as opposed to when you're somewhat resting on your laurels. Uh, yeah. I mean, I mean, look at 2016 too. I mean, it's like, uh, you had 55% of voters approve of Barack Obama and the job he was doing. You had a candidate who, like, whatever her flaws, she was basically like, I'm, I'm like white lady Obama, like, you know, like vote for me, like everything's cool, right? Um, and uh, people were just like, no, you know, like, I'm tired, I want to change. Um, it's really hard to win three consecutive presidential elections in this country because um, people get bored, 
uh, they get tired of the status quo. They want to shake things up a little bit, even if even if that same person is like, yeah, I love Obama. So I just went and voted for Trump. You know, I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. Like, but that's that's one of the laws of our politics. Um, and it's something we have to keep in mind. Right. Well, the the next one is uh, Democrats just refuse to move to red states. <laughs> Democrats, why yes. would they refuse yeah. to move to Wait red states? There. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I'm going to go with like a two on that one. I mean, I think, I think the idea that individual Americans make these strategic decisions about where to live based on, you know, like, uh, do I like the coffee shops or like, it's will fantasy. I be surrounded by people it's that are like me? Fantasy. It's such fantasy. You know, it's such fantasy. Like the jobs are where they are. I mean, I live right. where I live because of the job, not because right. I was like, I want to be surrounded by liberals. You know, when I, when I went on the job market for political science in 2010, if I had been offered a job in like rural Tennessee, like I, I would be living in rural Tennessee right now. Um, I don't know if I'd be on the show. Right. <laughs> My life could be very different. Um, but I didn't choose to come to Chicago because I was like, I want to live in a, in a blue city, you know? So the idea that we can get like millions of Democrats um, to move to, to, I don't know, like rural Georgia or something and flip house seats. Uh, it's an interesting thought experiment, but I just, you know, these are human beings. Like, what are they going to do in rural Georgia? <laughs> you know, like, where are they going to go to eat? Where are they going to order out for Thai? You know, like, it's just, uh, I just don't think it's going to happen, you know? Well, one of my proposals that I have on a local level here is that I, I will give my full-throated endorsement to the first candidate that comes along and has a plan for new Miami in a red state when this Miami gets flooded through and there's no land left for us to live on. If somebody has a plan to uproot Miami and drop it in the middle of, you know, just north of Birmingham or something like that. Uh, yeah, I'm on board. If you can actually, yeah. make it up. <laughs> I mean, it's like when I encounter a global warming skeptic, I'm like, put your money where your mouth is. Like, invest in real estate in South Beach. <laughs> like, invest in real estate on the North Carolina barrier islands. Go do it right now. Come by my house. Yeah, exactly. I got a house for sale. Literally, I will have a house for sale for you if you are that <laughs> bullish on the on that concept. Dave, so what's next, the next one, one is Democrats are actually a tiny minority of registered voters and we know this because of the very accurate maps that show all the red parts of the country <laughs> this is my favorite this is my favorite republican trope yeah zero um so uh there's a lot of counties in america um, most of them have very very few people in them um you know because the counties are not equal by population so that, you know, I don't have the percentages in front of me, but um, most Americans live in urban or suburban areas. Um, and the, the, all these red counties that went for Trump, um, you know, they went like 180 to 122 for, or probably more realistically, like 280 to 20 um, Trump Clinton. Uh, and so the idea that empty space, uh, you know, like empty rural space has some sort of like, uh, uh, moral legitimacy in democratic politics is, is really absurd. Um, you, you know, uh, empty counties are not people. Um, and, you know, empty counties don't have rights under the Constitution. And, and empty counties should not have a, like a death grip on our politics just because uh, a, a thousand, um, you know, uh, dusty counties in the middle of nowhere voted for Trump. And then the overwhelming majority of people in the cities went for Clinton um, you know, have fun with your maps, but that's, that's not where people actually live. It's, it's preposterous. I've just come to the conclusion that those maps are just trolling. Every time I see somebody doing that, I'm like, ah, you know, what's going on. You can't be this stupid. There's no way you're this stupid to think that that's some, some a real thing. I'm like, come on. I just, some, I, some people are, they are. Definitely some people are that stupid. Yeah. <laughs> 
swing voters are actual real things and they really hate Nancy Pelosi. <laughs> swing voters. Yeah. I always, man, when we get to the end of a presidential election, I'm like, I want to meet somebody. I want to meet the person that's undecided on October 31st of a presidential election year. Like I want to meet that person. I'm going to take them to coffee. <laughs> I need to know more about them. Um, cause it's crazy. Look, I mean, there are people who change their votes um, from election to election. There are Obama-Trump voters. Um, there were Romney-Clinton voters. Um, there are people who are who say that they're politically independent. But the, the number of people who are legitimately politically independent is much yeah. smaller um, than the people who claim to be politically independent. Like, most people are leaners. Um, they lean towards one party or the other, and they, they almost always vote for that party in the election. So independents themselves are actually not the most important block of voters in this country because Barack Obama lost independence in 2012 and he still won the presidential election yeah. because his people turned out. Um, and that's why I think it's more important. Like you don't want to deliberately alienate independence, but I also think it's much more important to, to make sure that your own voters get to the voting booth on election day, because that is what swings elections. Um, it was the, it was the decline in democratic turnout. It wasn't Obama Trump voters. It was the, the decline in the aggregate number of democratic voters who turned, who turned out in 2016. Um, that gave us Donald Trump, um, not, not these mystical, right. <laughs> mythical independents. <laughs> um, so the next one, uh, Bernie didn't campaign hard enough for Hillary. Yeah, I just, you know, no. Um, <laughs> good answer. Zero. Good, good answer. Uh, and I say that, I feel like. Yeah, you can actually, we can actually ask you the same, the, the next one in conjunction with that. And it was just the words, <laughs> Susan Sarandon. Let's <laughs> It's probably the yeah. same answer can kind of just like get <laughs> yeah, most important political figure in America, Susan Sarandon. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I feel like I have street cred here because I voted for Clinton. Um, and uh, I don't, I don't buy the story that Bernie cost her the election because he endorsed her at the convention. Um, he did do appearances for her, you know, like, was he super happy about it? Like, I don't know who cares. Like he was out there. Um, and the statistics show that the, the number of uh, Sanders voters, who you know stayed home or went for Trump was no different um, than than that of any other losing primary candidate in recent history. So the, the reality is that Bernie's voters came around um, at the same rate uh, that they did in any other um, presidential election year. So I don't blame Bernie Sanders for for this loss at all. Um, you know, like, do I like everything that was said during the primary on either side? No, um, but like, it's not Bernie's fault that that this election went the way it was. Um, mm -hmm. Not at all. Um, yeah, last one here. Uh, all of Democratic leadership is currently outfitted with ankle monitors because they have been secretly arrested as per QAnon theories. <laughs> yeah. See, now, this one, I think, I think there's something to this, this one. This is a solid, ten. solid, Absolute solid 10. 10. This is totally true. Solid 10. Yeah, yeah uh, this is totally true. Um, they're also, you know, um, as you're aware, there was a conspiracy launched in 2016 inside the deep state um, to rig the election for Hillary Clinton and then to, to accidentally also lose the election. Right. Um, so <laughs> it's uh, a very fluid, fluid uh, plan. You got to take a step back and watch it just to, you know. Yeah. Yeah. When yeah. you step back from the board with all of the like, you know, the strings and the and the and the three by five cards hung up, it all starts to make sense, you know, especially if you're yeah. off your meds. Yeah. I mean, it's like even I feel even even Carrie Madison on Homeland, I think she would step back from this billboard and be like, no, this actually doesn't make any sense. <laughs> <laughs> <This is crazy. laughs> 
Uh, well, again, uh, uh, what a country. <laughs> yeah. So the book is called It's Time to Fight Dirty, How Democrats Can Build a Lasting Majority in American Politics. You can get it on Amazon and we recommend you all do. David Ferris, thanks for visiting Bird Road. Thanks for having me on. It was a great time. That was a right, great so, interview. <laughs> thank you for getting us back on track, Dave. Um, love, hate. Let's start with you. What do you got? All right. Well, my love this week is that this week... Dave, Mark- what have you got? My love this week is that this week marked the... I thought you'd do it again. Uh, the, <laughs> the, the 40th anniversary of The Cure's first show, uh, which you all know that The Cure is my favorite band. And uh, they've been doing all they've been doing all this 40th anniversary stuff. They did this amazing concert. There's a lot of video footage of uh, online. There's like a, uh, some awesome like playlists and stuff to go along with it. A lot of video footage, uh, interviews, and all kinds of stuff. And hopefully a new album coming soon. So I, I'm just super excited about that. And I'm happy that the Cure uh, came to this world 40 years ago. My love is, um, again, I'll go back to the person who's been the story for the last couple of weeks coming out of New York City, Alexandra, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who news just came in before we got on the air today, that she won again. She won another primary, apparently. She won New York's 15th district primary, uh, which she wasn't running in. Um, and she won for the Reform Party, which she's not a member of. And she uh, won on a ballot that she was not present on by write-ins. So um, I think we're seeing the beginning of something kind of cool. Hopefully it doesn't turn into like this cult of personality thing. She's been really good about making sure that it's um, everything is focused on on the issues because it's an issues campaign. And uh, it's not, um, you know, I don't think there's going to be. I'll, I'll be worried if we start seeing like shepherd fairy photos of her or artwork of her. Um, that's when, you know, I think it all kind of starts to go downhill a little bit and watch, we're going to log off and that's going to literally be at the top of my Twitter feed. <laughs> um, but yeah, I thought that that was pretty cool. What yeah. do you hate Dave? What do you hate? Um, I think we've talked about this before about TV shows that, you know, just cool. Let's skip it impossible to uh to continue following because i get so bad uh this season of the affair is fucking terrible have you been watching it no i gave up on that show i haven't yeah. watched any tv this year so far really really you've been you've been a busy boy huh yeah i'm usually a person that like if i like something i will follow it through to the very end and uh it, it it's unbearable this season they, they they've completely lost the thread of what that show ever really was how's how's noah doing is he all right our special no, boy Noah, uh, he, he's he can't see his kids. He's he's basically turning into uh, like dangerous minds. He's like a teacher, and there's like a black kid he's trying to reach. Um, oh god! <laughs> yeah, it's so fucking oh, god. bad. That is such a shark jump. <laughs> and uh, everything. The, in the only show thing just that's the so only bad. thing that's got me excited about coming back to television is it's always sunny, and even yeah. that is like. Um, yeah, Even no, that, no, uh, they're not going to have. They're not going to have Dennis. They're not going to yeah. have Glenn Howerton. So, yeah. um, you ever hear the story about why um, why Glenn Howerton didn't name himself after his character, unlike the other two guys? 
Uh-uh. They asked him, like, why isn't your why isn't Dennis named Glenn? You know, because you know, Rob McElhaney is his character's named Mac, and then Charlie is Charlie. And he said, I didn't want to share anything with this character. <laughs> like this character. I didn't want him to have any characteristics of me. <laughs> that, that's especially funny because he wasn't even that bad yet in that first. No, season. he was the. <laughs> he was still bad, watch, but like. <laughs> to watch the 11 or. To watch the 11 or 12 years or seasons of It's Always Sunny is to zero in or zoom in on a case study of a, a person, one character losing their mind yeah. and it's <laughs> slowly loses his mind. and becomes just worse and worse and worse. Yeah. It's, it's good. I really hope they find a way to uh, pull off this new season because he's seriously the best part. So over here in Miami, my hate is, uh, is all about soccer. Dave, mm. everybody's going soccer crazy here because we're shortlisted for the, um, well, it's still a pretty long list, actually. I shouldn't say shortlisted, but we are on the list for the potential 2024, I suppose it would be, or 2026, I think. Actually. Water soccer. Uh, tw- 2026. Um, <laughs> 2026. 2026. How many times can I say it? I honestly, I don't know what year it's supposed to be. Whenever, whenever the next World Cup gets announced, it's it, you know, it was announced already that it was going to be in the see i used to think that they did this by city or by country but apparently now they're just doing it by hemisphere so it's like all of the americas are getting the next world cup and uh, one of the host cities i guess it's up for grabs they found a way to like make it even more corrupt and get squeeze the most money from cities that they possibly can uh miami is is um under consideration to be one of the host cities for the not the next world cup, but like the world cup after that. And um, so everybody's losing their shit and inventing all these like fake numbers about economic impact. Cause everybody always is like, Oh yeah, the world cup means that we're going to get uh, billions of dollars in tourist revenue. Fucking never happens. It means that all these stadiums are going to pay for themselves. Never fucking happens. And caught up in all of this is this push by David Beckham, um, former soccer footy. Great. Uh, British hunk, cutie pie, David Beckham, who um, who is the um, the the like the premier member of an ownership group that has been pushing this sort of theoretical Major League Soccer team in Miami for a long time that has very incremental and slowly come from idea to uh, you know almost reality now, and they're now after going through all of these potential sites because. Land is at such a premium here in Miami. It's hard to find a stadium-sized hunk of land anywhere in Miami, especially in the part of Miami that people actually want to be in, like in the in the central uh, coastal part that's mm. you know not out in the middle of Kendall or Westchester or whatever. Um, there's a great soccer field, a soccer stadium, football stadium out at FIU. Nobody wants to go to fucking FIU. It's like just a mosquito trap piece of shit land nobody wants to be there um so long story short they've settled on mel reese golf course which is a uh, piece of public land it's debatable whether that is the best place for it's i mean i i i don't want to have the argument about whether that's a better place or the other site that they had picked out in a very poor sort of dilapidated part of town uh, called overtown which now is becoming 
like the next target of gentrification, whether that would have been a better place. I think that that's ultimately an irrelevant conversation. And I just hate that there's another public-private partnership involving fucking stadiums in our city. This time, to be fair, there's no public funding going into it, but there is public land involved in it. And there's opportunity cost that goes into that. And it's just, it's, None of these fucking billionaires can keep their hands off of the public shit. Like they have to have somebody else assume some risk. And it's a lot of risk too, because the numbers that they're throwing out just the last couple of days with no background documents, all of the reporters that are covering this, uh, Glenda Milberg and Doug Hanks and, um, and friend of the show, uh, uh, Jerry Ionelli, um, all been writing about this story the last few few days and <laughs> the, the the financial documents that they're slowly drip drab getting their hands on and that they're releasing are they're just the most pie in the sky ridiculous fiction they're like it's it's the old meme where it's like uh you know step one build a stadium step two question mark question mark question mark Step three, profit, you know, and it's just like none of it makes sense. It's all assuming almost a million dollars a day in revenue from a mall that doesn't exist in an area where nobody goes to shop. And it's like the shitty Miami Marlins stadium that happened a few years ago. It's like it never happened. All they're saying is, well, there's no pub- there's no public money involved, which means that that there's nothing to worry about it's still going to be a fucking drag on the community. Nobody's learned a fucking lesson from this stuff, man. It's representative of a bigger problem in our national po- nationwide policy where we seem to have no problem helping out people who could very easily help themselves out. If this ownership group wanted to dig deep and buy up several tracts of land from private owners around the city, they could. And if they can't, then guess what? Don't have a fucking soccer team that nobody's going to go watch anyway. Nobody's going to go watch the fucking soccer team. We had the fucking Miami Heat with LeBron James for four years. Hardly anybody showed up to those games. I don't care what they say about them being sold out. They weren't. If you actually go to the games, you see how empty the stadium. That's LeBron James. You think anybody's going to go see Major League Soccer in, in fucking with the air with the airport in the background. It's fucking ridiculous. Do you know, until you just said that, I had no idea LeBron James was on your team. He's not anymore. Well, Dave, I mean, he, he was. Been. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. I don't know. I don't want to get into the whole thing where like, you don't know anything about sports. Don't forget to subscribe, rate and review to the show guys. Here we um, go. Yeah. It, it helps us out. If you uh, do that, why don't we make this a marathon podcast? Why don't we stay on, make this a five? Because I'm about show. to go get Mexican food for free. And so you have to let me go and do that. I promise guys. Don't forget July 21st and 22nd is OZ fest. <laughs> <laughs> make sure you get your tickets. Uh, you can still get them VIP tickets for like 500 bucks, I think. Oh, yeah. <laughs> to go see, That's to a go hot see Common. To go see Common. And what was the name of the other ones? Like uh, Blair Underwood and the, the Feelers. I don't know what the fucking name of the see? Did you see uh, real quick that there was some festival that DJ Khaled was supposed to be on? And he posted on Instagram, hey, I'm just not going to be there. 
Uh, I'm too busy. <laughs> I'm, I'm on vacation uh, and I'm, I don't want to end it yet. So I'm just going to miss this festival. And it apparently came out that the festival organizers knew he never had any intention of showing up. But they they just continue promoting. That could be a good new move. That's a new move, I think. Like, because yeah, what are you gonna do? It just gets you press. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it just gets you press for the next shitty thing. Festivals like, are terrible anyway. So I was about to ask you that. I was about to say, could you picture right now staring down the barrel of forty as we both are, um, going to a fucking festival? Can you picture doing something like that? I couldn't picture doing that when I was staring down the barrel of thirty. Yeah. It's it would be like it would I like three of my all time favorite bands would have to be on it. And even then I would be really busy complaining the whole time. When I was like 20, we used to go to Warp Tour. That was already too old to be going to Warp Tour. <laughs> I was already I already felt like a like a weird creep being there. And it um, is kind of a shame, though, yeah. that Warp Tour is over now, because I think that would have been a good place for us to do a Bird Road episode. Oh my god! It would have been perfect. It would have been, it would have been a good per, good place to end Bird Road and kill yes. each other. <laughs> well, it would have been the most downloaded. Speaking of, speaking of us killing each other, uh, podcast movements coming up in two weeks, uh, July twenty third through twenty sixth. We're doing a meetup on July twenty fourth. Uh, you can find out information on that on our Facebook page that doesn't exist, uh, but you can also find it on the actual podcast movement website under the uh, meetups section and we hope Dave don't be curating that fucking page behind my back oh trust me I'm not going to I've I've got enough fucking pages to curate (laughs) (laughs) 